The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, February 21st, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Deep state or shallow president? Now, I don't mean say shallow president just as a free-floating insult. What I mean to do is look at the various claims of a deep state people out to get the president to thwart him. And I want to consider depth, not as an absolute, but as a relative condition. So issue one was this claim, which dates uh, back to January, as reported by KGTV San Diego. Now the Paradise Fire victims who just returned home might not get FEMA funds. President Trump tweeted this morning, if California doesn't get their act together, he has ordered FEMA to send no more money. But a Freedom of Information request reveals that FEMA got no such order, or they say they got no such order, or someone in the line of command took the order, if it existed ever, and stuck it in a desk drawer. So a Trumpista might yell, deep state, deep state. How dare a bureaucrat obstruct the president? And that's what we mean by deep state. But I would argue that's more of a shallow presidency. He didn't have the wherewithal to see it through. He didn't have the staffing to make sure it happened. He didn't have the skill to hire people to see his vision brought to life. He lacked the capacity to execute. There are always power centers in Washington, and the executive should be the most powerful, except when it's not, through incompetence or inattention. Take the trans ban in the military. The generals say, sure, sure, sure. And for a year, it doesn't happen. Then the Trump administration tries to get it to happen, and the courts become involved, and they mostly allow it to go through, though not totally. Now, is this the deep state, or again, is this the shallow presidency? Here's another example. Former Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe is making the rounds, promoting his book, and ringing the clarion call of justice, but also promoting his book. MAGA Nation will claim deep state But it just seems to me that McCabe is acting like a very normal civil servant who reacts to a bizarre and unusual encounter in a usual way. Here is McCabe on the Chris Hayes show last night talking about when he met Trump in the Oval Office. It was from the very beginning a perilous and um, a really, really uh, concerning interaction. I was trying to navigate that interaction um, by telling the president the truth but trying to do so in a way that I didn't provoke an all-out confrontation with him right there in the Oval Office. A confrontation that may have been a more satisfying way to have that conversation, but one that I thought would ultimately be a distraction to my ability to lead the FBI. McCabe didn't draw on some nefarious reserve. He didn't consult his cronies in the deep state. His reaction was what the kids might call basic. You know, it's it's hard to describe, and I, I feel like I've really uh, overused the term shock and surprise, and I couldn't believe it. But but honestly, that's what you're. That's what I was thinking in those moments. A normal garden variety, competent government employee juxtaposed with the president, and yeah, one seems a lot deeper than the other. But again, the state is not deep. The head of state is just shallow. On the show today, I spiel about Disney World. And yeah, a little bit about Donald Trump. But first, the Netflix show Russian Doll stars Natasha Lyonne as a woman who experiences her 36th birthday over and over again. She's hit by a taxi, dies, comes back. Falls down the stairs, dies, comes back. Swallowed by a manhole, dies, comes back. 
So we're joined right now by one of the stars of Russian Doll and by the creator, who in fact is coming back to the gist. And that'll be right after this elevator. Amon plunges 15 stories. On Groundhog's Day of this year, a show named Russian Doll dropped on Netflix. Now, the reason that Groundhog Day is important is, of course, because Bill de Blasio dropped the groundhog on its head in the Staten Island Zoo and it died. <gasps> and that groundhog did not come back. I don't Are know you if serious? you guys know that. It is serious. This there's, is there's also another movie that maybe has a tie-in <laughs> to this excellent show <laughs> called Russian Doll about Natasha Lyonne dying, coming back to life, dying, coming back to life. The creator of the show, one of the stars of the show here, the creator is Leslie Headland. <laughs> Rebecca Henderson is... Uh, a star of the show. They're also married, which is cool. Doesn't always happen. Hello. Hello. Well, well, if it did always Doesn't happen. Doesn't always happen. That would be very polygamous. Hello. Thanks, Hello. For, thanks for coming in. So I had Thank this idea. I hope this show has gotten a lot of attention, but I hope it becomes a social uh, phenomenon where people begin greeting each other with the way they just recently died. So I want to greet you by saying, hi, uh, parachute didn't open. <laughs> oh, God. So, oh my would, God. How would, you, how would you greet me? <laughs> I mean, like, hi, um, Shark cage gone terribly oh, wrong. Great. I was going to say that. Wrong. I'm obsessed with great white you sharks. With shark cage. Yeah. I guess the worst would be um, burned to death in a fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, Obviously maybe, in a fire. maybe yeah. worse would be right. burned burn to, to death in my home. Not in a fire, like dry ice or something. <laughs> yeah. I suppose there are ways to. A- acid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Horrified. I think about death all the time. So I. <laughs> Let's go there. <laughs> I don't know if you remember because I didn't when I saw, saw your name and then I saw the show and then I started doing research and I saw your picture, Leslie, and I'm like, she's been on the show before. I have been on the show before, firstly with other people. Right. And yeah. I just want to tell you something that we have um, statistics about which shows are listened to and they're mo- they're very consistent. We don't have huge pops. Oh, but no. I remember at a time, tell me why this show that you were on would, would have been like the most popular show of a six-month period. The shows around it were Excluding Black Jurors, Our First Latino Poet, Alison Bree's Sex Scene Therapy, That's and right. Making Interest Rates Interesting. Now, why would you think right. that the sex scene therapy... <laughs> the sex be, scene therapy. Yeah. I was thinking, though, of Alison Bree and Natasha Lyonne, and I was thinking, they're both great comedic actresses, but there is something perfect about Alison Brie. Like, she's cast as Trudy in Mad Men because she yes. has that, like, perfect sheen, that yeah. glossy... She could play a lot of different things and she was great in that movie. Yeah. But this mo- this show needs the craggly edges yes. of a Natasha Lyonne. Yeah. Well, it was kind of her show... Well... It was her pitch to me, the show. Do you know what I mean? Like, How, was no, I don't. How detailed was the pitch? It was like it was basically like that character yes. and uh, most of the characters that are at the party, uh, and some that are out, like you know the Ruth character and the horse character. All those people already existed um, in her mind. You mean in her mind? Wow. She was like, she was like, I want you know this character. I want to have this type of person. You know, I want it to all take place at this party. Uh, you know, I want it to take place in the East Village, and here's why. But but I think we skipped it. She was saying someone dies and keeps coming back. That was part of her pitch. No, actually, (laughs) initially, death was a part of it in the sense that, like, we knew that the character either the character was either already dead or was going to die because she kept referencing all that jazz as well as like like she wanted to look at that part of 
mortality through like a very theatrical lens the way that movie does or Fellini's films like Toby Dammit was a movie that she referenced a lot as well and I think just like her own personal autobiographical experiences of kind of really you know I think she put it this way, actually, dancing with death. You yeah. know what I mean? And then kind of coming back. So she so. had like a vision board and a setting was yes. there and characters were there yes. and the theme of death was there. And the theme of death was there and and what Amy really brought to it was... This is Amy Poehler, Amy who's Poehler, also a creator. What she really brought to it was this like sort of setting the stage or setting up the playground for us of like, you know, if you could do anything, what would it be? Like if you were going to write a show about a female protagonist that didn't have to do with like romance, work, sex, motherhood, Mm -hmm. what would it be about? One of the things I talked about a lot in the writer's room as well as the pitch was that I was like, my goal with this show is that it's so addictive that the second it's over, you want to watch it again. Yes. That you want to have the, you want to have a Netflix experience that's not just where watching 10 episodes of television and now we've finished that narrative it's that you had an entire four and a half hour experience and now you want to have it again the same way you want to put on an album again and that, the way, and, you that know, and that parallels what's actually going on in the show yes. it's been called yeah. the most self-conscious netflix show the show Very that's meta, most yeah. informed by the fact that this is how people watch television now and i kept saying that too so many times and i think that you know, we didn't want to be so presumptuous that we were going to be the people <laughs> that, like, cracked that idea. But, right. like, to me, it was so exciting. I've never worked with Netflix before. Obviously, neither had Amy. Natasha obviously has, like, a longstanding, amazing, you know, relationship with the them. Black, right. You know, so, um, so, you know, but that was very much in the forefront of our minds of, like, what's the next step with streaming? Like, what's the next step with how to create your narrative? And yet it is very meta. I think the show does a good job of of pushing those boundaries and at the same time you feel taken care of, hopefully, by the narrative and by the by the form. Yeah. I once interviewed um a kind of culture critic, TV critic, and he had a theory that I didn't quite believe, but I tested it with myself, which is how do you know if a show is great? Well, shows are very good at cliffhangers and addicting you and making you want to watch the next episode. So for a show to be considered great, watch it like this. Always end a half hour into the show or halfway through and then start halfway through. You could wait till a scene ends, but don't <laughs> rely on the cliffhanger to keep you going. And then you realize certain shows are good at manipulation and certain right. shows are really good at being shows. And your show... I mean, it's all structured, I get that, but there are a bunch of episodes. You could have gone eight minutes long on one, three minutes short on another, and just started at random different times throughout different episodes, and it totally works. You know, I I watched, um, while we were in the writer's room, I watched Mosaic. Did you watch uh, Soderbergh's... It eventually, in January, came out as, like, uh, you know, a full, normal HBO series, but in late 2000... 17 it came out as an app and it was exactly what you're describing and and in true Soderbergh fashion you know it was it was a brilliant idea executed <laughs> like kind of sloppily you could watch it on Apple TV and you would choose uh, much more interactive than a Bandersnatch, for example, where you're just making one or two choices. Like, you're actually choosing which story that you want to watch. And each section, like, some of them were only, like, 10 minutes long. Yeah. And some of them were, like, 45 minutes long. Yeah. You know, like, so it was really, the the timing of it was not adherent to an old idea of how TV works. Rebecca can tell you that I got really obsessed with it and 
<laughs> spent like eight hours watching every single. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Although she I, came in and she was like, "Are you still watching this?" And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> Although I would say that the films that he's made his most money on, which are the Oceans, those are kind of sloppy ideas executed brilliantly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, that tells yeah, you where the exactly. money is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or um, or Magic Mike. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're just kind of like, oh wow, this is the most brilliant, mediocre idea I've ever. Oh my god, it's really good. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Right. You always tell yourself, I can't believe I like something of this job. <laughs> Filming, uh, okay, so I have some questions about acting in this. Every time we see a new loop, which is what you call one of her new experiences, are you acting that all anew? Yes. Yeah. So it seems like there are some portions that are absolutely the same, not just mostly the same, but like note for note the same and action for action the same. I think if they're actually the same, they must just be repeated footage. Is you, that right? That's what I'm asking. Oh, oh no, no, no. I think everything, I felt like everything was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Like Natasha would re- re-enter as Nadia yeah. and we would react to her uh, afresh. Yeah. And we kind of made a choice early on. Um, I don't know if it was even really conscious, but like we just really made a choice early on that unlike Groundhog Day where kind of the joke is that everyone does the exact same thing and they're only affected if the protagonist does something different. Right. Our thought process was like every time this restarts, Everybody does restart, but they don't necessarily all make this, the yeah. exact same decisions. It's because, a nice comment on free will in the universe. Yeah, actually. like, totally. like you know, Lizzie comes in, I think, like a little bit later in the first loop than she did the first time. Like, yeah. Sometimes when they she comes in, Lizzie is not there. Like, we wanted to kind of set up the feeling for the audience that it wasn't, like— I mean, it works brilliantly in Groundhog Day because it's about a narcissist kind of learning to care about other people. Do you know what I mean? Like, whereas, like, Russian Doll, I think, is going for something that's a little bit more um, nihilistic, honestly, that the world doesn't revolve around you. And, like, in a way, it's your sense that the world revolves around you that's actually the thing that's keeping you in in, in a prison. Do they? F- did you film all the party scenes in one block we did block shooting, so we yeah. shot one through three, and then four, five, six, and then seven, eight. So there, were, we didn't do all of the party scenes at once. But I, I worked for like th- three weeks, and then had like a month break, and then came back for three weeks. And and the second set of three weeks, those were later episodes. You essentially yes. went in order. Though yes, you exactly. We did probably go didn't in... have to. I mean, if you were great, was it all written before filming started? Yes, every second. Yeah, so you I could have. I think done there it was a little bit of writing with seven and eight when we had started the first block block of one through three. I think we might have been a little still working on those, but we were, right? Yes, you were writing. But there were, there actually (laughs) were a lot of things in episode one that we ended up shooting at the end. Like all the deli was at the end. Oh Mm -hmm. yeah. So block shooting is really challenging anyway for television, but also when you're shooting in New York, you're shooting on location. Mm -hmm. Basically, like if you find a deli. Yes. You got to get you everything. Close it down. You right. got to close it. Probably close the same with Tompkins exactly. Square Park. You can't go. I mean, you, you can if you want to blow the budget. Yeah. And but, there are some savings in terms of costumes on this show. Yeah. <laughs> also shooting it at three in the morning, which right, is when they right. yeah, that was the, the hard park. part. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Absolutely. always fun. Which, which, unlike most places, Tompkins Square Park is probably still going on a little bit at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's got some. But they were looking at the at. You know, we had to stand in the same place usually. Like, we definitely had to keep an eye on where, like, oh, Lizzie's not in the scene because she's making out in the bathroom right mm-hmm. now. Like, there was a, a lot of oh, yeah, there were, time and energy went into, okay, where is everybody? What are they wearing? What are the time loops? That was Which all That was in? all planned out. One thing that was tough was that if it rained, we couldn't shoot. Yeah. Because we were like, you know, sometimes when you're in New York and you've just got a weather day, you just shoot through it. You make it part of the scene. Like, you know, all that kind of stuff. I but, love that, by the way. I love watching a movie with rain where it's not part of the plot because 
thing, sometimes it rains. Like every sad so. funeral scene is in the rain. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But I like just watching a rando scene. That or like a or like a, a declaration of love is in the rain. Yeah, why not? <laughs> it's like, like, you know. But, Very much the notebook. But yeah, that was the, oh yeah, the note. Oh my God, that's the, that's the best one. Did you consult with, so I talked to Mike Shore uh, from Good Place, and he said uh, he had struck up a friendship with Damien Lindhoff. Is that the oh, guy yes. from Lost? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. Lindhoff kind of uh, explains to Shore how Good Place is going to work. Oh. And I know that Polar has a Shore connection, so I was wondering if you got if you had any uh, sensei about doing this kind of mystery box show. No, we and didn't. And I had not heard of the phrase mystery box like four oh, you years had ago. Well, a few years. Now everything's a goddamn mystery yes, box. Yes, yes, anyway. everything. Everything's, everything's yeah. a mystery box show. We didn't actually, I mean, I think, I guess I was that person in the sense that, like, I'm just a big fan of all of those shows. Like, I'm right. a big Losty, like, so, no, we didn't really have that. You Although love Good Place. And we Lost. love Good Place. And I will say that, like, you know, there were a lot of things that, you know, we, wa- well, at least I watched just to make sure we weren't stealing Ripping it. Ripping it off. Right, you know what right. I mean? Like, meaning, um... There were a couple things people would say. Like, I remember we had already sold uh, or were about to sell the show to Netflix when I watched Westworld. Yeah. And it, when, you know, the pilot, when she keeps waking up and it's the same music oh, that and is stuff. that's true, yeah. I was like, oh, hey, guys, so... Uh, you guys should probably watch the pilot for Westworld, like blah, blah, blah. And so we definitely, I definitely watch those things to be like, what what do we not want to do? You right. know, like, what is it that we don't want to deal with? And, you know, it's funny. I was reading some, I don't read too much about the show, but like when people tweet at me and stuff, I usually, that's when I kind of like tune in. Someone made the point of like, why don't these characters say that they're having a Groundhog Day experience in the show? And I'm like. That would be like saying, like, if you were in Lost in Translation, if, like, Scarlett Johansson was explaining her character, her, like, her her infatuation with Bill Murray by being like, oh, he was in, he yeah. was in, he was in Ghostbusters. Right. You Do you know what to, I mean? Like, it's you like, have to take a couple right. of elements t- <laughs> out of the world. Like, you're buying that she's dying again, but yeah. you can't buy that this is a world that Groundhog's Day doesn't exist. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's like, okay, you know, like, there's, there's a delicate balance of shows, other puzzle box right. shows, and, and watching them, and knowing them, and then also referencing them, like, outright referencing them. Right. And I will say about the, um, the sort of uh, mentor thing. I know Natasha's close with um, uh, Spike Jones, so I know that she talked to him a lot about, you know, the kind of Kaufman-esque, yeah. like, you know, we've got this cool, high concepty idea, but how do we make it emotional? Like, how do we make it a narrative that is fulfilling in the way that you're describing? So it's possible that that, that was also in play there. I don't know him because I'm not cool enough. But <laughs> you got, Well, you got to get him. I mean, <laughs> is there going to be a season two? Do you know? We don't know yet. Oh, we don't God. know yet. How could there not be? I mean, I I, I think that, you know, once you have a, a, a first season like this, I would be surprised yeah. if they didn't do a second season. They've but. been doing, right, Netflix has been releasing some versions of ratings. Have they done Oh, have that? they? I think so, with some oh. of their shows. And then, like, Bird Box, they told us yes. how many people Oh, they really it. wanted to tell us about Bird Box. Yeah. They were like, yeah. let's tell you about our Bird Box. I just get the sense that the show that's always right there is the first option people are watching. Mm-hmm. They commit to that. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they just, they really show. push that. And yeah. also, just a compliment, like, obviously Natasha Leone is a star, and obviously you're very talented, but if this weren't executed, back to execute, and obviously Amy Polder's name, but yeah. who watches it because of uh, a creator's name? It's the, ex- <laughs> it's the actual thing. It's the execution yes, 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 that yes. has captivated so many people. You guys have done a great job. Thank you so much. Thank and thanks for having, having me back. I really love the podcast, and I love Slate, and it's really nice to be here, especially with my... 
I'm just better smiling half. at you, admiring you. I'm like, you're so smart. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't I love it you. That's what I was thinking. I was like, God, her brain is really different than mine. Wow. <laughs> Thank God. That's why Somebody's got to make the money that's around why we here. we do podcast interviews, to learn about our partners. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Hedlund is the creator of Russian Doll. Rebecca Henderson stars in it, uh, doing similar things in most every episode. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you, guys, for coming in. Thank you Thank so you much. for having us. Thank you. And now, the spiel. I just got back from Disney World, and I can confirm it is indeed a world of laughter and a world of tears, a world of hope, and a world of fears. Because without fear, there wouldn't be Disney World habitué Donald. Duck? No, Trump. No, uh, what I mean is duck! Here comes Donald Trump! If you go to the happiest place on Earth, and you think you can escape Donald Trump, you are wrong. Well, to be fair to myself, but unfair to my traveling companions, I did kind of seek out Donald Trump or those of his ilk, the presidents. I insisted on going to the Hall of Presidents, which is where all those animatronic presidents come to life and expound upon the glories of this country, this country that so kindly elected all of them. So the kids and I, we did this thing where we went nuts for Millard Fillmore, Naturally, we're Fillmore fanatics. I'm not going to play that part of the audio. We skewed the sample. But let's, I taped it, let's hear how some of the other presidents were received. Uh, let's start, we'll build up to one who's on Mount Rushmore. Benjamin Harrison. William McKinley. Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, now... Here, there was a smattering of applause for Theodore Roosevelt. I I hope it came out on uh, the tape. Really, two or three faint claps. And it was then, right around Teddy Roosevelt, that I realized, oh my God, Donald Trump's going to get some sort of reaction. Would it be positive? Would it be negative? Hmm, I had about 19 presidents to ponder this question. Arguing for a positive reaction was the setting. Arguing for him getting a negative reaction has been the totality of his presidency thus far. Arguing for a positive reaction, the setting we were in, Disney attendees did not seem to me to be mm, a perfect reflection of America's demographics. They seemed to skew Republican. Why do I say this? Well, look at look at the age cohorts. So a lot of people under 12, let's not count them as voters, but not a lot of people in their 20s or maybe early 30s. You start getting the parents who are maybe in their late 30s and 40s, and then a lot of grandparents. So there were too many millennials. Also, if America is 13% African-American and almost none of them voted for Trump, Disney was much less than 13% African-American. And specifically where we were, the Hall of Presidents itself which draws a patriotic sort of person. I looked around, crowd of about 700, I saw four black people. Now I have to say, there were some people there who were different sorts of patriotic. I consider myself patriotic. My oldest kid, he's patriotic because of me. My youngest kid just thinks it's hilarious to cheer for Millard Fillmore. Also there was my girlfriend, Michelle, and her parents. They're impassioned about President Trump, but in the same way that Indiana Jones is impassioned about snakes. So as I said, we were surrounded by 600 or something white people, about four black people. That could be an undercount. I really tried not to Brian Kemp it. So that's all prelude. Here we are. We're getting closer to Trump. Ronald Reagan. George Bush. Bill Clinton. Oh, it's mad on you. 
George W. Bush. Barack Obama. Okay, so there you hear Reagan, Obama, another baseline of support for recent presidents. Will Trump be cheered or jeered? Here to introduce Donald Trump from the Hall of Presidents, it's George Washington. Citizens, that I took an oath. 35 simple words that have been repeated by every American president throughout history. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect... So that was a very big reaction. My girlfriend and her mom thought that most people in the hall cheered. She, my girlfriend, Michelle, also said that that cheer was the most disturbing part of the entire Disney experience, and she waited online for 65 minutes to ride a goofy-themed roller coaster for one minute and three seconds. She also wound up throwing up back in the hotel after suffering some effects of heat stroke. But Trump was the most disturbing. And so what I did after hearing from her was try to counter her emotional reaction with logic which history shows never works. And yet if I really were logical, I would take this into account. But I don't. I, try, I said, you know, we get a poor sense of the actual size of support from who is booing or who is applauding. Uh, not only does that not actually show uh, the actual support in the crowd, also just uh, sonically, we're very bad at estimating the percentage of an audience who might be clapping. Maybe it wasn't so pro-Trump there. I pointed out the crowd there in the hall is going to be more pro-Trump than the Disney crowd in general. And the Disney crowd in general is more pro-Trump than America in general. And you got to realize that 40% of American citizens do tell pollsters consistently that they support Trump. These were all good arguments. Still, we should acknowledge maybe the vomiting wasn't only heat stroke induced. Then I did the other thing that I do, and I began thinking about the entire Disney experience. I really couldn't help it. And yeah, the park is crowded, and yes, it's quite expensive, and yes, the Avatar ride at the safari part of Disney literally had a wait of 345 minutes, to which I said, well, no one's going to wait that long, but then I realized, wait a minute, if the wait is 345 minutes, by definition, someone is waiting that long because if no one waits that long, the wait will be less than 345 minutes. In 345 minutes, you can watch the entire season of Russian Doll while online waiting for Avatar and then watch all of Avatar, which runs two hours, 42 minutes. You'd still have about an hour of wait time. So yes, yes, yes. All this acknowledged, but Disney is done so well from a narrative perspective. I'm not saying I enjoyed all of it. I love that my kids loved it. But everything about Disney is a triumph of story. Every ride told a story. Every roller coaster had a premise, had a payoff, and the experience generally adhered to the rules of narrative. And that is exactly why we love Disney. But I had time to think about this as I was waiting 45 minutes for Dumbo to ascend. And I realized even though storytelling is the most human of traits and is a core, if not the core of the humanities, it's not always humane or done in the service of that which is humane. And when I began to really consider almost everything I saw from a critical vantage point, everything just revealed itself to be, as we say these days, problematic. It was kind of crazy. And this wasn't my mind playing tricks on me. 
I mean, Splash Mountain, you know, the big flume ride, it is built around the movie Song of the South and Uncle Remus and Br'er Fox and Br'er Rabbit. Uh, Rabbit? That film was protested as racist in 1947. A decade ago, the Disney CEO at the time stated that they would not be releasing the movie on DVD, calling the film antiquated and, quote, fairly offensive. But there at the park, Br'er Bear, Br'er Rabbit, all for your flume enjoyment. There's also Thunder Mountain Railroad Roller Coaster, which you would say, what's the big deal? It's a roller coaster. Well, what it is is actually a whimsical celebration of strip mining and workplace safety. Seriously, on the way up to the roller coaster, as you wait in line for a while, you read all the signage and all this. It's a set. And there are so many jokes about the dangers of dynamiting oneself or one's coworkers. The Pirates of the Caribbean ride recently had to remove the wench auction scene. I noticed that the women were chasing the pirates and not the other way around. I think that that was a recent correction. Aladdin, of course, engages in Orientalism. This jungle cruise they have depicts mask-wearing headhunters. Dumbo's a mistreated circus elephant. Any animal rights activist will tell you that's a redundancy. Take even the most popular ride in the park, the fairly new Seven Dwarves Mine roller coaster. What's wrong with the Seven Dwarves? It's a fairy tale. Well, the more recent Disney-produced version, Snow White and the Huntsman, They didn't actually cast actual dwarves. KPCC's Pat Morrison did a segment on it at the time. We're talking about most recently the film Snow White and the Huntsman, where actors like Ian McShane and and Bob Hoskins have been changed by CGI to play those roles of the dwarves, the Snow White dwarves in that story. And whether or not this is really kind of a slap in the face to people who are otherly able to people who have disabilities not to play those roles that show their disabilities. She interviewed Donnie Davis, an actor who is a little person, and asked this question. Mr. Davis, some people have said this is as bad as having white actors wear blackface to play black roles. Do you agree? I do agree, definitely. Okay, I think that goes too far. But I didn't play that clip or cite these examples in the service of a sort of political correctness is run amok. I am relaying the thoughts that I had while contemplating, lengthily contemplating, the implication of all the attractions. I wasn't offended. I wasn't uncomfortable. But I was aware. And I think for Disney to work, to the extent that it does, most of the people there can't be as aware of the implications of these attractions as I was. Because let's face it, people, you listen to the gist. I am at best lightly woke. A fair hint of woke. If woke was olive juice, I'd be a very dry martini. It's been said that Disney, Walt Disney, the man, but also Disney the brand and Disney the place, exist in an idealized, nostalgic world. Walt-based Main Street USA and so much of the aesthetic in the park on his memories of Marceline, Missouri, where he lived between the ages of four and 11. But if Walt Disney the man was genuinely nostalgic for that place and time, the visitors to Disney the park today are nostalgic for a nostalgia. You would have to be 110 years old to have experienced a Main Street USA circa 1910. So if you have a fondness for that setting, what you're actually attracted to is the Disney construction of that setting. That's probably where you learned about it. It's a nostalgia for the nostalgic, and it's 
clearly working on an unconscious level among the 25 million people a year who pass by Casey's old time ice cream shop or the confectionery or the Harmony Barber shop. Arm garters and a straw boater. Well, that's that's simply accoutrements that Mickey Mouse sometimes wears. The trappings of Main Street USA are a nostalgia for a type of set and costume, not for a type of place or clothing. I'm walking right down the middle of Main Street USA. This isn't bad. It's not bad. It's not a criticism. Walt Disney was so skilled at creating his fantasy world that he, in a way, implanted memories into the collective unconscious. He took his own reveries and imparted them to millions, maybe billions of people. Think about that. These warm evocations of Americana and tradition stem from this one man's own memory. That is one of the most potent acts of anyone who has ever lived on this planet. It is more than Millard Fillmore ever did. And he did it because he was so good at storytelling which seems like a benign or even laudatory feat. But not necessarily. Because you know, Trump tells a story too, and he bases it on shared assumptions that aren't real. But you know what? So does an anti-ableist activist. He's also telling a story, as am I in assembling these stray thoughts in a coherent way. No one told stories better than Walt Disney and the Disney Company. I just think it's worthwhile to ponder what those stories are actually saying and why they work so well. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader die every day producing the gist. They come back the next day to produce the gist, but they've lately been wondering if the Israeli couscous they ate was laced with cocaine or ketamine. TJ Raphael is the Gist senior producer. She can't believe we went through an entire show without really looking at the relationship between Clarabelle, clearly a cow, and Goofy, species indeterminate. Please subscribe to the Gist newsletter at slate.com slash gistnews. In it each week, we will answer the trivia question. What trivia question? This trivia question. What U.S. president had a cast of his actual face used in the creation of his animatronic Hall of Presidents counterpart? The gist. Great news. The Disney app shows the Avatar ride is down to three hours, 15 minutes. The only question is, will you be able to get on it before James Cameron completes the next two sequels? Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.